Romans chapter 15, verse 22. Let's start there. I'll admit it, Three Dog Night was one of my favorite bands in my adolescent years. How many of you know Three Dog Night? All right, anybody? How many of you don't know Three Dog Night? I still listen to One and Celebrate and Eli's Coming. Those, that's the trifecta that... Uh, in fact, the first rock concert I went to was uh, Three Dog Night concert. The Swing Auditorium in San Bernardino. My brother, my older brother took me. It wasn't much fun. But anyway, <laughs> one of their lesser songs was Never Been to Spain. Right? Huh? Remember that? All right. You hardcore Three Dog Night fans. That's essentially what Paul says to the Romans in this section. That's my little segue, would you think? Not bad? He was planning to visit them on his way to Spain to pioneer a work for the Lord. So let's read verse 22. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. Paul was hindered from visiting Rome because wherever he went, non-believing Jews opposed his ministry because he was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. They simply would not allow and admit that God was extending grace to whosoever will believe in him without either first or subsequently adopting the law of Moses. Uh, It was just so ingrained in them, uh, and, and it would have been in you and I as well if we had grown up in an orthodox Judaism. Some of us have our, had our own problems when we came to Christ. Uh, I remember my next oldest brother, when he came to Christ, it was a long time before he could take communion because he, he, he I had no problem believing he was genuinely born again, but having come from a Catholic tradition, it, it just took him a while to sort out how um, casual and memorial actually communion was among believers compared to the uh, thing that the Catholics do that they call communion. And, and so it's interesting. People have struggles with their traditions and, and all. And so would Paul, Paul would go. He'd always start in a synagogue if there was a synagogue, or he'd find a group of Jews meeting down by the river if there weren't enough men for a synagogue, and he'd preach the gospel, and then he would branch out to the Gentiles. Uh, and whenever he would do that, certain Jews would be upset. Whenever you attempt to serve the Lord, you can expect to be hindered. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul said, we would have come to you, but Satan hindered us. That's 1 Thessalonians 2.18. And so Paul was familiar as a servant of the Lord with being hindered or hassled in different ways. I think sometimes we have a romantic notion that if the Lord is leading then there are going to be smooth sailing, uh, you know, clear water, uh, and that that's one of the ways that we know that the Lord is leading. Quite the opposite is often the case, and that's why you need to be so careful making decisions based strictly upon circumstances. It, you almost, uh, I mean, circumstances are certainly important. They play into that. But you can't just make your decision based on circumstances. You can't say, well, you know, this seems like it's just smooth and everything's fine, and so the Lord must want me to go in that direction. Neither can you say, oh, there's a lot of obstacles in my way, so I guess that's not the Lord's will. Jonah 
had smooth sailing at first, did he not? Uh, But he was going the wrong way. God told him to go to Nineveh. He went down to the port and he took a ship going the opposite direction. And uh, after a while, God whipped up a storm and got him where he was going. Uh, And so, I mean, it may sound silly, but, you know, Jonah in his rebellion, you know, wow, I'll go down to the dock. Hey, there happens to be a ship going in the opposite direction. That must be the Lord's will, even though God, did God really tell me to go to Nineveh? Maybe I just dreamt that. And then he gets on, and for a while it's smooth sailing. He's just living on easy street until the storm whips up. On the other hand, the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee were in a pretty fierce storm. These are like Bering Sea guys. These are like the deadliest catch guys, you know. I mean, they're used to storms on, uh, on, on that little body of water. They're rough, tough fishermen. They're guys that, you know, you ever go out with guys like that? You know, they're used to something and, and, uh, and you're not, you know, maybe. Uh, let me just tell you right now, don't ever go on a small plane with anybody. That's just my advice to you. I've kept that advice my entire life, and I'm, I'm planning on doing that. Because these guys and gals that fly small planes, they want to blow your mind. At some point or another, they're going to go into a fake stall. Oh, my gosh. What are we? Because they want to see you just sweat, you know. So just forget that. But uh, so these guys, the disciples, they're out in this storm, and they're kind of freaked out. They don't want to wake up Jesus uh, you know, and admit they're freaked out, but they finally do. And then Jesus, of course, calms the storm immediately. But they found themselves in a storm, but that was the absolute center of God's will. And so you have to be careful with circumstances and know ahead of time that you're going to be hindered in serving the Lord. You're going to be hindered in your Christian walk in general, whether you're trying to serve the Lord or not, because we have an enemy. Uh, and he wants to break up the road in front of you. That's what one of the words hindered uh, translated means. He breaks up the road in front of you so that it's hard to walk with the Lord. So circumstances, very important, of course, because it, they happen to us, but you can't, you can't read into circumstances too much. You have to really just have that communion with the Lord, talk with the Lord, seek the Lord. Uh, I'd much rather somebody come to me and say, I got this word from the Lord or this verse uh, is speaking to me than say, well, we were headed in that direction, but then, you know, uh, now we've got car trouble, and so I guess we can't go, or this or that or the other thing. So we just have to be careful about that. Verse 23, but now no longer having a place in these parts, having a great desire these many years to come to you. No longer having a place in these parts meant there was no new ground to win for the Lord. It doesn't mean that the holiday inns were all full or that you know, he couldn't find a room or anything like that. It's his way of saying that there was no place left in the parts that he was at to share the gospel, no place to pioneer a work, and so he was moving on. We saw last week, Paul said... He always wanted to be a pioneer worker. He didn't want to build, he said, on another man's ministry. Now, obviously, I mentioned that last week, but I want to emphasize that because he says it again here. Too much church planting today is not pioneering work where churches really need to be established. It is instead men building upon other men's work. Uh, And... um, I don't know how much plainer to put that. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, not, it's not hard if you're in a church and you have a following, which we would call a division at some point, and you say, we don't like one or two small things about this church, so we're going to go next door and start our own new church for, for the Lord. And we're going to do those couple of things a little bit differently. And, um, you know, in the past we would call that a church split. Now today it's a church plant. Uh, and so, you know, there's plenty of places where people really are hungry for the Word of God or where you could do a pioneering work for the Lord. Uh, even cities that have churches, they don't have, sometimes they don't, ha- you know, have uh, the kind of churches that, uh, would, uh, that are s- similar to, say, a Calvary Chapel. I was looking uh, online the other day, just, uh, there, it's a whole long story, but I'll just tell you, I was looking at Erie, Pennsylvania. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? I, by the way, I don't want to go there, but uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, it's a population of about 150,000, something like that. So not a huge thing. 200,000 people in the county. They have 49 Catholic churches that are listed in Erie, Pennsylvania. You can't swing a cat without (laughs) hitting a Catholic church in Erie. They have almost as many Lutheran churches. Uh, and a lot of these other kind of extreme denominational churches. And I couldn't really find hardly any small independent churches, and no Calvary. The closest Calvary chapel is in Cleveland, Ohio, 100 miles away. And so, you know, if you're a Calvary guy and you think, wow, I wonder, you know, should I plant a church in Lemoore or should I go to Erie, Pennsylvania? My vote is with Erie. And we'll help you because they need a Calvary Chapel and probably Lamore doesn't, you know. Then uh, you say, well, how about Corcoran, Gene? Well, I'd like to see us plant a, a Calvary in Corcoran, but I also got, have gotten to know the Baptist pastor in Corcoran. He's uh, the chaplain for the Corcoran Police Department, and I wouldn't have any problem sending somebody to that fellowship. It's a good, strong, solid Bible-teaching fellowship. Do they believe everything we believe? No. But only in non-essentials. You know, it's a good place to go and hear the word and get saved. I wouldn't have a problem with that. And so, um, you know, Paul said, I want to work for the Lord, but I want it to be real work, you know, where people really need ministry. I don't want to be playing no games with God and and being there where it's easy. Uh, Verse 24, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. He hoped to stop in Rome to see the saints he was writing in this letter. He said it would help him on his way to see them. In what ways would it help him? Well, one way is that he says he would enjoy their company for a while. The church ought to be a place where saints enjoy the company of other saints. I enjoy being a Christian. I'm not pining away for the things I used to do before I was saved. If anything, I wish I had gotten saved sooner so that I didn't have the things that I used to do to even think about or to remember. Uh, and so I, enjoy, I like being a Christian. I just I wish I, it could have happened sooner. I'm not saying I don't have any struggle with the flesh. We all do. Only that I recognize that when I do, it is the flesh and that it's going to lead me to ruin if I yield to it. The only 
benefit maybe, and I hate to even use that word, of having been uh, gotten saved later in life is that I understand the ruin uh, that, you know, of these things uh, that, that people get into, these pursuits, whether it's power or possessions or pleasure, uh, you know, these things that become addictions and then life-dominating habits and, you know, things that destroy people. Uh, so we all have that struggle. What I'm trying to say is that the Christian life is better in every way. It is real, it is purposeful, it is meaningful. It, it, I remember, I've told this story before, but there are no stories I haven't told before. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, except the ones that haven't happened yet, you know. But uh, when I got out of college, actually, I went into college because I realized if I didn't go to college, I'd have to get a job. I was quite honest. Uh, I had no plans to go to college, and high, you high schoolers don't listen to this. I had no plans to go to college until I realized I, I'd have to get a real job. So I went to college. Then I had no plans to go on in college until I realized I'd have to get a real job. So I decided I'd try for a master's program. And there was part of me was sincerely, there was at Cal State San Bernardino, which was a kind of a new school at the time. They had a master's program in psychology in counseling. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to help people. I want to counsel people and help them. Uh, now, of course, I needed help. Uh, I wasn't a Christian. Um, my marriage was it, stupid and terrible. Uh, I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. But I'm the, just the guy that you want to talk to. Uh, you know, I mean, I didn't admit any of those things. That was just my life. But, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that's really going to put you on the road to recovery. You know, that, that's... And I, had, I was sincere. And then I was really blown out that they, uh, they only took 10 people a year for that particular program. I put all my eggs in that basket and they didn't take me. Duh, what a... You know, look at what they're missing. And uh, uh, so then I did have to get a real job, and uh, it was terrible. Real jobs are terrible. But anyway, uh, then I become a Christian years later. And in, es- in essence, now uh, you're in the ministry, and just by the sheer reading of the Word of God, just by teaching the Word of God. You know, and sometimes people will come up to me, and you all know how dumb I am and how, you know, I can be flippant and stuff. And people come up and say, you know, 25 years ago, you know, I saw you in Save Mart and you said this. And I'm thinking, yeah, I never said that. But I'll take, I'll give the Lord credit for it. And, uh, you know, because they thought, or maybe I said something just off the top of my head, not, you know, who is this person? And I'll say something, you know, and, say, and it changed their life because it was the word of God, not because I said it. And so you're, you're just helping people. And so, you know, God brought all that together. So the Christian life, it's just the better life in every way. Not everybody's a goof off like me, but regardless your personality, you need to learn to enjoy the Christian life. As we saw Sunday in our study of Jeremiah and his sash, we're supposed to adorn the Lord in beautiful ways. If the average non-believer thinks Christianity is a sacrifice, it's a bummer, it's a drudgery, that comes from their observation of Christians and what Christians have made the Christian life. I'm not, you know, it's not a blanket rebuke to everybody. I mean, we're not all, but, but generally speaking... Non-believers do get their information about Jesus Christ uh, from other Christians, from watching Christians, and their conclusions are that we're a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. 
And sadly, before, before I can say, oh, no, that's not true, uh, sadly, you and I both know that that is true in many cases. Just don't let it be true of you. Make sure that you have the joy of the Lord, joy unspeakable and full of glory, and that you understand and believe that you're living an abundant life for Jesus Christ, enduring sorrow, working through struggles f- for sure, but a real life, the, the life that you were intended to live. The secret, of course, is to enjoy the Lord himself. It's to be realizing in fresh ways every day that he is your sufficiency. Uh, If you enjoy your personal relationship with the Lord, if that is growing deeper, nothing else really matters, does it? You you know, suffering, degree of success, status, all the things that we look at that really discourage us and really depress us and really wipe us out, none of them really matter as long as we've drawn close to the Lord and are in love with the Lord and uh, are sharing the Lord. And so that's the secret. Now, there's another important way Paul could be helped in his way by the Roman church. Verse 25 says, Now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem to deliver a a gift to the poor saints there. Uh, He had gathered it in the Gentile churches that he was visiting. The believers in Jerusalem felt the brunt of Jewish hostility and hatred towards the gospel. Their lands and their goods and their monies uh, were often confiscated. When we believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, when he wrote to the Hebrew Christians, he's one point he said, imagine getting this as an encouragement on a Sunday night service where Paul said, hey, everything's being taken away, taken away from you. Your family and friends are turning you into the authorities because you're a Christian now. Paul says, take joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Ha! Thanks a lot, Paul. So when, you know, when, uh, you know, we complain, you know, we do the Willie Nelson thing where all of a sudden the tax man comes and takes all of your stuff, you know, which I think is pretty incredible that the IRS has that power. I get the impression that you could be sitting in your house and all of a sudden, you know, hey, I'm the tax man. Maybe they play a boombox with that Beatles song, you know, and stuff, if they have a sense of humor. And then they just take everything out of your house because you owe back taxes. God bless you. Have a nice day. This is America. Uh, so anyway, you know, so this is what was happening to the Jews. On top of that, they were getting kicked out of their trade guilds because of being Christians, and therefore they couldn't work. Nobody would hire them. And, and as they would cry out about this and pray about this, Paul said, Hey, I have an answer for you. Take joyfully the spoiling of your goods. <laughs> All right. And you know what? The, it was an exhortation that they took to heart, and they did. Uh, they, they're the kind of people, it's kind of a situation where you say, hey, I think you missed something. What? Yeah, I, you didn't look over here where I've got some other stuff that, that you really should confiscate as well. Since you're here to take all of my goods, I want you to take all of them. It's kind of fun when you're in a situation like that, actually. Well, it can be for you. But anyway, uh, the Gentiles in Macedonia, by the way, we have a pastor friend of ours who pronounces it Macedonia, 
Uh, and uh, he insists that somebody from Macedonia told him that that was true. And uh, so maybe we should start doing that. It could be our thing. But anyway, uh, the Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia were cheerful and anxious to give. In fact, they thought of it as paying a debt of gratitude. The Gentiles, after all, were being grafted into the promises that were once to the Jew. With all God had done for them by grace, how could they not be generous? Generosity is characteristic of Christianity. How can I really be stingy with anything if I understand all that God has given me? All I have needed, thou hast provided. And so I need to be uh, generous. Verse 28, therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Paul spoke of your support as a reward. He said it was fruit to the account of those who support, and that it would be sealed, meaning it would be secure where it was being kept. The only place you can be sure something is absolutely secure is where? Well, that's in heaven. And so he's talking about spiritual fruit that would abound to your account. As you give, God gives you a share in the ministries you support, and you're rewarded in heaven for it as if you were doing the work Yourself, And so Paul says we help each other along uh, by supporting the work of the ministry. And here he was talking about physical financial support. Scholars are divided as to whether or not Paul ever made it to Spain. There's not enough evidence to decide with certainty either way. It's enough for us to see that his heart was to carry the gospel to places it had not yet reached, establishing or visiting established churches along his way. And so that was Paul's vision, his MO, whatever you want to call it. He said, man, I want to go where the gospel has not been preached, and along the way I'll stop and encourage the churches. Verse 29, but I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Paul was hindered and hated wherever he went. He had no place to call his home. He had spent time in prison. He was in constant danger in his travels. There are many, many other hardships we could mention, yet he describes his missionary efforts as the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These hindrances and hardships convinced him that he truly was a minister of the gospel because he was being treated just the same way that his Lord Jesus had been treated. So he said, hey, I'm coming to you in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing in Christ's sufferings. Verse 30, now I beg you, therefore, brethren... Uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints and that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Paul asked for prayer in at least three areas. For his safety, he asked to be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. Paul's strategy to overcome opposition was to ask others to pray. Notice that his prayer was to be delivered. I might be reading too much into it, but usually you only need to be delivered if you're in danger already. Uh, And so he understood that trouble was going to be his lot. He understood that because the Lord had promised him that when he first got saved. Paul got saved on the road to Damascus. Then Ananias came and prayed for him. Jesus said, I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Paul... Uh, didn't pray to be kept from those things. He prayed to be delivered out of those things because he knew 
that he was going. He knew he was going to be in a shipwreck. He knew he was going to be stoned. He knew something was going to happen usually that was out of the ordinary, uh, but he wanted to be delivered out of it in a miraculous way as a testimony to the gospel. Paul was committed to the gospel regardless of the hardships, and his primary concern was never for his own safety, but for deliverance so he could keep on preaching. Uh, He's the guy that he'll talk to the angry mob. The mob that's angry about him, that's trying to lynch him, he'll say, I'll talk to those guys. You know, and he didn't have a death wish. He had a life wish for them. He wanted them to know the life of Jesus Christ. For his service, he asked that it be acceptable to the saints. Now, in the context, uh, his service was bringing a gift to the poor saints at Jerusalem. You'd think a, a gift would be acceptable without the need to pray about it. But Paul knew that folks could be strange. There might be a pride that refused to accept charity, especially from the Gentiles. And so, uh, it, you know, the Gentile-Jew situation in the, first situa- in the first century, even among Christians, it was a sticky situation. And to, for Paul to bring a, you would think, because we're Gentiles, you think, oh, yeah, we're going to give this great gift to the Jews and show, us how much, show them how much we love them. And the Jew might think, this is a belittlement. And so Paul said, hey, you need to pray that they'd actually receive this gift. On a larger scale, ministry can be from the Lord, but not received very well by the Lord's people. I've been involved in plenty of situations over the years, and not just here at our church, but in other churches I've had the pleasure to serve uh, on boards and such, where a certain way of ministering or of approaching ministry, of a certain philosophy, you might say, of ministry, actually was a cause for uh, division in the body of Christ. Because, uh, you know, certain individuals think, well, this is the way that, you know, we want to do this particular ministry. And others say, oh, no, that's wrong. That's terrible. This is the way that you should do it. Uh, And, you know, we need to pray for a a peace in that situation because sometimes people get really blown out about stuff like that. Uh, And so Paul was sensitive to those things. For his steps, Paul asked that he might come to them by the will of God. He had his own desires that he thought were godly, but always wanted to be subordinate to God's will for his life. And so Paul was asking for prayer. He understood the power and the necessity of prayer. Now, what I'm about to say isn't meant to put a burden on anyone in particular. If it exhorts you, then it's for you, but I'm not trying to guilt or shame anyone. It's simply an accurate observation. I've I've said this before, but I'll say it again. We, as a fellowship... As a corporate fellowship, we just don't pray enough. You may personally pray like crazy. You might be praying constantly without ceasing right now. Uh, That's fine. And in secret, we all should. But we as a fellowship, we don't get together enough for prayer alone. And when we do get together, very few people come for prayer. Now, that's typical. Again, I'm not, I don't want, I'm not, you know, look, I'm happy. I'm saying it with a happy face. It's just an observation, if you, and, but, and it's true. Uh, and that's not a good observation. It's something that, that should change. You know the story about Charles Spurgeon and prayer, right? Here's the version I heard. It goes like this. I'll read it. Five young college students were spending a Sunday in London, so they went to hear the famous C.H. Spurgeon preach. While waiting for the doors to open, the students were greeted by a man who asked, Gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant of this church? They're not particularly interested, for it was a hot day in July, but they didn't want to offend the stranger, so they consented. The young men were taken down a stairway. A door was quietly opened, and their guide whispered, This is our heating plant. Surprised, 
The students saw 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was soon to begin in the auditorium above. Softly closing the door, the gentleman then introduced himself. It was none other than Spurgeon himself. And that story is told in a lot of different ways. And um, a lot of churches have a testimony like that. I know, and, and I'm not saying we should have 700 people praying at, you know, before our service. That'd be nice. We don't. But, uh, you know, and, and, but it's constant. And, then, you know, we should have somebody praying before our services, and we don't always. Uh, I mean, you might pray. I'm not, again, you, you're, you, don't be offended. I can't really offend you because then you'd have to say, Gene, I'm a real prayer warrior, and then you'd blow it. You'd be, you know, it's like you'd be out of the closet, as it were. <laughs> Think about that, yeah. Christian comes out of the closet, admits he's a prayer. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm just... An anonymous source said, prayer is the real work, evangelism is just the mopping up. Wow. So if we do an altar call and there's not much response, it's a failure where? In prayer, not in doing the altar call. S.D. Gordon said, prayer strikes the winning blow, service is simply picking up the pieces. And so uh, it's not that we need to pray more, we need to want to pray more. And then we will pray more. And so just take that to heart. Uh, let the Lord use that in your life. See what comes of that. Paul ended this section with his own prayer. Verse 33, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. In chapter 15, the Lord had been named the God of patience and consolation. In verse 5, the God of hope. In verse 13, and now the God of peace. How many names and titles are there for God and for Jesus Christ? Well, there's a bunch. That's because he's too wonderful to be captured fully in even all of them put together. A few years ago, we did a, a, a Wednesday night series where we did the, some different names of, I think we went through the alphabet. We picked an, you know, a name that started with the letter A and then B and then C for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there's just hundreds, maybe thousands of names and designations for God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And each of them reveals something unique and wonderful about his character and nature. So why choose the God of peace here? Well, a major object of this letter was to establish peace between the believing Jews and Gentiles and to show them their mutual obligations and the infinite mercy of God to both of them, though they pursued their walks with the Lord differently. There were many believing Jews who continued in many of the Jewish customs and traditions, and there were Gentiles who didn't do any of that. They quit worshiping idols. They weren't pagans anymore, but they didn't do that. And so there needed to be a peace, even though they, you know, these guys, they didn't get saved. Here's the thing you have to understand. The Jew, the first century Jew, the first century Gentile, they didn't get saved and then go to a Calvary chapel where everybody did the same thing all the time. They had their own traditions. Many of the Jews who were Christians would still go to the Sabbath or synagogue and obey the Sabbath, and then they would go to church on Sunday night with the Gentiles who didn't do any of that on Saturday. And so Paul was saying, hey, God is the God of peace. And so get along. And he concludes, therefore, that the God of peace, he from whom it comes and by whom it is preserved, may be forever in their midst. I want to return briefly as we close to Paul's desire expressed twice to go to Spain. And, and I want to do it like this. You might ask yourself, do I have a Spain in my spiritual planning. You see, Paul had never been to Spain. We don't know if he ever got to Spain. 
He's talking about the Romans, and he wants to visit them on his way to Spain. So he had a Spain in his life. Do we? There are two, wi- two ways, at least, that you might, probably more, but these are the two I thought of. One way is to have a definite spiritual goal, something that is from the Lord, but that you are working to accomplish in cooperation with him. Don't bother just setting your own goals, but seek the Lord, pray, and, and as the Lord would form a, a, a desire in your heart or a goal in your heart, then you can begin to cooperate with the Lord in that. The Bible says that God has good works, which he has what? Before ordained that we should walk in them, meaning he knows what they are. So he'll show them to us, and then we need to prepare ourselves for them. And so maybe you know what that is in your life. Maybe you have a spiritual goal in your life. Maybe you have a lot of them. It doesn't have to be just one overriding thing, but there's something that God has put on your heart that's spiritual, and, and you and the Lord are now working together to cooperate, it, uh, cooperate on a daily basis to accomplish it. Uh, I, I know when, after we first got saved and Pam and I began to sense that we would want to do full-time ministry, I remember Pam very wisely said, she goes, well, then we'd better get ready for that because we're not ready right now. We're, we're, we're not in a position where we could go into the ministry financially and all of that. And so we, had, we started getting ready. I don't know if you're ever ready, ready, but you know, you, at least you can cooperate and start getting ready. Another way to have a Spain in your planning is to just approach everything you do in terms of its potential as an opportunity for ministry. How can I interject the gospel right where I am in a new, fresh way? Anytime anybody mentions anything to us, we start thinking, how can we do, what can we do? How can we get the Lord involved in that? How can we establish a Bible study? Where can we plant a church? What can we come alongside of you? What, what is the Lord maybe doing in this situation? Now, 90% of those, nothing ever really happens. I, I don't want to say nothing, but, you know, n- nothing huge. I mean, there's prayer and there's encouragement, but, but a lot of times we think, well, we can come alongside of you. Can we make that better? Can we help you? Can we give you resources? Um, what does the Lord want to do in that situation? And it's really, you know, it's interesting, you know, because we believe, I, I think we believe in a vocational Christianity at our fellowship where your vocation, whatever it is, is the place where you're a missionary, it's actually an idea that comes out of the Puritans. But, uh, but, you know, but, so wherever you are, it's like, okay, so what can I do here to, to have a greater impact for Jesus Christ? Am I praying for my place of employment? Am I trying to meet with other Christians? Uh, do we have a little prayer meeting or a little Bible study, you know, going? Can I carry my Bible? Can I watch, you know, Ignite on the Internet? And, and uh, you know, or Sunday morning service. Can I do this or that or the other thing, you know? Uh, and, and how can I really make an impact here in every, you know, how can I, do I want to put a sticker on my car? Can I drive the speed limit so that I can put a bumper sticker on my car and not be a reproach to Jesus Christ as a lawbreaker? You know, those kinds of things. And, and so, so those are two ways. But either way, we need to be on our way to Spain, on our way ultimately to heaven. Amen?